Normal broadcasting has been discontinued. Coming to you from Portland, Oregon. The sports business capital of North America. Keep your radio tuned to this frequency. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Now, your host. I tell you, I've never seen anything like that guy. Brian Berger. Well, thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Glad you could join us this week. Well, we're celebrating the fifth anniversary of Sports Business Radio this week. All week long, I've been counting down my five favorite conversations from the past five years on our website at sportsbusinessradio.com on my blog. On our show this week, we will replay my two favorite conversations from the past five years. It was hard to pick only two, but these are the two, and I think you'll enjoy them. In segment three, we will replay my conversation with Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban from 2006. If you want to learn about business and being a successful business person, you've got to listen to this conversation with Mark Cuban. That's coming up in segment three. Then in segment four, the golf icon of all golf icons. And with the Masters going on this week, this is even a more fitting conversation. Jack Nicklaus was on with me last year in 2008. That's coming up in segment four. What a class act. My favorite conversation that I've had in five years of doing this show. A couple of other notes. Visit my sports business blog or download the SBR podcast on demand. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com. I'm joined in studio by my producer, Bobby Corser, and by Nathan Roach. First of all, we've got to congratulate John Lashway of Toronto for winning the Sports Business Radio March Madness pool. For his efforts, he will receive dinner on us at Morton's The Steakhouse. Guys, five years we've been doing this show. We started off locally in Portland. Now we're nationally syndicated. And, you know, looking back this week on some of the guests that we've had on this show, it's been an honor to be able to talk to some of these people. Well, and I've been associated with this show for five years. I haven't been on the air for the full five. I've been on for about three and a half. But watching this thing grow from what you and Keith Foreman, the other founder of Sports Business Radio, started to where it is now is really exciting. And it's amazing that it's been five years. It is. And in addition to the great guests, there have been so many uh, stories. And, you know, every week we see more and more that, you know, the stuff going on behind the scenes in the sports world is so very important. Speaking of behind the scenes, how about the Masters app on iPhone? We saw the March Madness app. I wasn't a big fan of it. But this Masters app where you can watch video of the Masters on your iPhone Brilliant. Best app ever. Well, it's not just watching video, but you can watch it on your 3G network. The problem with the March Madness one is you had to be around Wi-Fi. You can watch it on the 3G network, and it's just as good as the March Madness one. All right, we've got headlines coming up. We're going to give you final TV ratings for the men's and women's March Madness championships, the final four. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Thanks for five great years. This is Brian Berger from Sports Business Radio. I know many of our listeners dream of a job in the sports industry but don't know where to begin. To me, it's an easy call. Go where sports business education got its start, at the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. As the first business school in the country to offer undergraduate and graduate programs themed around this multi-billion dollar industry, the Warsaw Center offers a unique blend and strong general business training. Sports business curriculum taught by industry experts and rich out-of-classroom experiences, including real-world consulting projects, study tours, and internships. With a strong industry and alumni network and a staff dedicated to accelerating your career, the Warsaw Center has a proven track record of placing students in teams, league offices, corporate sponsors, marketing agencies, sports media, and sports shoe and apparel firms. 
But like any elite team, there's only a few spots on the roster. To learn more, visit sportsbusinessradio.com for a link to the center's website. The Warsaw Sports Marketing Center. Passion, integrity, and leadership in sports business education. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. It's time for this week's Sports Business Radio headline sponsored by the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. Visit warsawcenter.com for more information. Headline number one. The biggest crowd of all time watches the men's championship game at Ford Field in Detroit between North Carolina and Michigan State. Bobby's Michigan State team lost, but while the crowd was up at the game, CBS felt a little bit of a punch on the TV ratings, down 7% from the thrilling Kansas-Memphis game last year, Nathan. Well, one of the things we talk about all the time on this show, especially with regard to the Super Bowl, is how long is the audience going to stay tuned? And within the first five minutes of that game, the game was basically over, so people were switching channels, watching something else. Watching how big that crowd was at Ford Field was incredible to see that many people turn out for a basketball event, but what a letdown for a game. It was a letdown, and the Final Four, so on Saturday, the semifinals, TV ratings for those games were up 7% for the first game, 2% for the second game. 72,456 came to the semifinals, so about 500 more people crammed in for the final game. Now, for the women's, UConn defeated Louisville 76-54, 18,000 fans came to the Scott Trade Center, and that attendance was down quite a bit. So there is concern at the women's Final Four, the attendance has decreased over the last few years. Well, and I think that the women's Final Four would have increased in both attendance and probably ratings as well had Oklahoma been in the final game. Courtney Paris. Courtney Paris, thank you. That would have intrigued viewers to come and watch that, but she was out already. She was out already, and by the way, the... AD at Oklahoma has basically said, Courtney Paris, your $64,000 will not be accepted here. All right, this was the stat of the week that jumped out to me. WrestleMania 25, held last Sunday at Houston's Reliance Stadium, home of the Houston Texans of the NFL. They drew a crowd of 72744 and brought in a total ticket revenue of $6.9 million dollars making it the highest-grossing gate event at a live event ever staged by the WWE. I am not a follower of the WWE, but those numbers are downright impressive. Our last headline of the week, and this is according to the Sports Business Daily, Anheuser-Busch once again topped all sports ad spenders in 2008. They spent more than $277 million. That's up 27.1%. Don't forget 2008 was an Olympic year, though. The rest of the list, AT&T Mobile comes in second, Chevrolet third. You know they're going to stop spending as much money. They spent about $178 million. Sprint Nextel was fourth, Verizon fifth, Toyota sixth. Ford 7th, they'll probably also be down. DirecTV was 8th, but they're up 155% in the last two years. So DirecTV and AT&T Mobile spending a lot more on sports properties. Number 9 is McDonald's, 10 is Visa, and then 11, I'll throw it in there because they're a big spender, is Coca-Cola. But Coca-Cola is really cutting their spending as well. So it's interesting to see. I mean, again, this is what makes the sports world tick. Sponsors. And if these sponsors are going to cut back on some of their spending, 
that's going to be a big problem for many sports teams, for venues, and uh, for events. I got to say, the one that surprised me the most is uh, is Visa because this was an Olympic year, and Visa is such a huge sponsor of the Olympics. You would think that it would be up, but it's in fact down twenty percent. Well, it's down twenty percent over a two year period, but it was up one hundred and forty percent last year because they spent so much money, like you said, Nathan, on the Olympics. All right. Coming up in our next two segments, this is the five-year anniversary of Sports Business Radio. We are going to replay two of my favorite conversations over the last five years. Coming up next, Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban and then golf icon Jack Nicholas. coming up in segment four. It's Masters Weekend. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. My guest is Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Let's go back to the year 2000. The year before you bought the Mavericks, they were 40 and 42. Fan interest was pretty lukewarm. When you bought this team, what did you see in this team? What was the potential that you saw to get them to where they are today? Probably none. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. I think the reason why we have a BCS-type system in Division 1A and elsewhere we have playoffs is that the schools in Division 1A feel that the regular season is the most important aspect of football. Read the Sports Business blog and listen to SBR On Demand at SportsBusinessRadio.com. See, I think that's the big thing. Sports Business Radio, Saturday. <laughs> Or online at sportsbusinessradio.com. My guest today is a man who has taken a once mediocre franchise and turned them into one of the most thriving franchises in all of sports. Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Mark, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. So, Mark, let's go back to the year 2000. The year before you bought the Mavericks, they were 40 and 42. Fan interest was pretty lukewarm. When you bought this team, what did you see in this team? What was the potential that you saw to get them to where they are today? Probably none. <laughs> Actually, when I when I bought the team, it was mid-season in January 2000, and they were nine and 23. hadn't been to the playoffs in more than 10 years, and. Um, actually had been voted the worst professional sports franchise of the 90s. Unbelievable. Yeah, and, and you know, for everybody was like, are you crazy? You overpaid. What were you thinking? And, you know, for me, it, it wasn't a business investment first, but, you know, you, you looked at it and you thought, you know what? In situations like this, there's only one direction things can go, and, and that's up. And so um, I looked at it and said, okay, let's see what I can do, and, you know, all you can really do is is do what you know, and I just tried to bring the same business principles that have worked for me in other areas to, to the Mavs. So how did you change the mindset? Because like you said, you know, this was a losing organization, and a lot of organizations have gone through many years of losing, and they're never quite able to change that mindset with the players, the fans, the sponsors, the community. How did you change the mindset? What did you do well, specifically? It, you know, again, I tried to take the same business principles. I, I looked at the culture of the organization, which was – very simply, one of survival. It's like, how are we going to get through the next game? Please let us not embarrass ourselves. Please <laughs> let people show up. You know, from a sales perspective, they waited for the phone to ring, and I said, you know what, guys, that's just not going to cut it anymore. I've got two jobs, and the first is to set the vision of this organization, and from now on, you know, the business side of things in terms of fans and and our customers, we can't control whether the Mavs win or lose, but we can control the experience they have in the arena. And we're going to invest in that to make sure that it's fun. I want it, I, I want it to be like a good wedding, you know, the kind where people are drinking and dancing and having fun and shouting 
and screaming, and then you kind of forget who actually got married. Um, and, and so we started within the stands. Um, we started with the sales force. They had like five salespeople. And I was like, you know, we were in a reunion arena at the time. I was like, we sell, have to sell 17,000 tickets 41 times for 41 games. And if I have to hire 17,000 salespeople, I'll <laughs> sell 41 tickets. That's what we're going to do. But I set up a, a sales organization where we hired, you know, like 40 people. I put my own desk right in the middle of all the salespeople, and I got there early, and I started making cold calls. And I said, you know what, we, we have $8 tickets, we have $10 tickets. Or, you know, you could you could go have a, a Big Mac, fries, and a large drink, or you could go to the Mavs game. That's how inexpensive we are. And But we do a terrible job of communicating that, so we're going to get on the phone and we're going to start letting people know that we're a great value. And then from the, the team perspective, you know, I, I tried again to take the same approach. We had, you know, I looked at the, the technology business I'd come from and said, okay, we invest millions of dollars in, in hardware and software and backup systems and and then we spend money on training. Here, the basketball business, professional sports business, we spent money on millions of dollars on athletes, but we gave them no support. It was kind of like the conventional wisdom was, you're, get, you're getting paid all these millions of dollars. You figure out how to be the best at your, at your job. And to me, that was crazy. So I took a lot of flack, but I told our players I was going to put them in a position to succeed. I was going to make their job, their lives as easy as possible so they could focus on their jobs. I brought in, you know, tons of assistant coaches that I really didn't I paid I paid my assistant coaches less than I paid people that I used to train on Microsoft Word or Microsoft Excel or or software products, but I brought them in to give um, our players one-on-one -on -one attention. And then I told our players, I said if you don't give me everything you got cuz I'm going to give you everything I can. Right. If you don't give me everything you got, you're going to be gone. So and that kind of became a, a self Oh, what's the right word? Self-weeding process. It right. Weeded out the guys who weren't willing to work and let us evolve. You're such a passionate owner. Uh, some people have been critical of you because you're in the huddle and you're around the team and you travel on the plane. But I think that gives you a unique perspective. How has that perspective and that closeness allowed you to make personnel decisions? Well, you know, it's funny because it, you're exactly right. People gave me a lot of grief about it. And in reality, if you think about it, okay, if you had – a business. I don't care if you're selling widgets or what you're selling, and your most expensive widgets were all in the room at the same time, and your best widget salespeople were all in the meeting at the same time. As CEO of that company, would would you face criticism for being in the meeting or not being in the meeting? <laughs> right, for not you know, being in the meeting. That, that those meetings are every huddle that takes place in an NBA game, and you know you look at a lot of NBA teams that haven't had success and. You know, they go through coach after coach. They go through player after player. And when you look at the decision-making process, it's always one or two or three steps removed. It's an owner relying on multiple people that really, they're, those people, their self-interest is just in keeping their job. That was one of the most expensive lessons I learned, and, and probably I, I was lucky in being around the huddles. And that, and that expensive lesson was the number one job of a general manager or coach in the NBA is not to win championships. It's to keep their job. Hmm. You know, it's kind of like a politician. There, there's only 30 positions that pay millions of dollars and let you work six months a year. Right. You know, and do you want to lose that job or do you want to win a championship? And, and what that led to was, you know, people, it gets, it's a clubby business. It's a fraternity business where, you know, one coach, you'll see if he goes from team to team, he'll take all his coaches from the former team with him or right. his trainer or strength coach. And so – 
you know, the industry realizes that, and so they kind of insulate themselves and make decisions accordingly. And so I said, you know what, that, that's not going to work. I have to change that. And the only way I'm going to understand what's going on is to be as close to the real people that get the job done, and that's the players and the coaches while they're doing their job. Just like, you know, I, I would go on a sales call to help our salespeople. I would sit with programmers. I would sit with engineers. You know, I would visit customer installations of technology to, to see for myself what's going on. Well, you know, you apply the same principles to a basketball team, and that means you're where the rubber meets the road, which is right where the huddle is, right? Right. Absolutely. That helped me make the decisions. That's a great perspective. My guest is Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Mark, you're a businessman. You're a successful business person. What are the two to three cornerstones for building a good business, whether it's sports or anything else? Oh, my goodness. Um, I've got my own little set of rules, right? <laughs> I, I, and it's worked use. pretty well for you. Yeah, so far so good. Um, you know, first of all, you, you've got to be the smartest guy when you walk in the room when it comes to your business. There's, you know, it, put, aside profession, put aside professional sports because I can't hit the jumpers. I can't, you know, make the steals. Sure. Um, you know, so put that aside. But in a business, no matter – and, and, and let's talk, you know, most small business, smaller businesses. You know, if – if it's your baby, if it's your business, you've got the ultimate responsibility. And if you don't know your business better, you know, somebody's out there that's going to kick your butt. Right. You know, you, you've always got to work from the perspective that there's some 12-year-old kid trying to come up with a better technology or a 30-year-old guy who, or, or woman who is trying to take your business from you and just trying to kick your ass. And if you work from the perspective that someone's trying to kick your butt – you know that'll make that'll incent you to be the smartest guy in the room and and to be prepared. So that that that's rule number one. And and rule number two is don't lie to yourself. We so often, particularly if you're starting a business, you know it, people tend to to oversell themselves. Well, if I only get one percent of this industry, I talk to all these people and they love my idea. Um, I have these three customers; they love my product. And rather than being brutally honest and telling yourself what's wrong with your product so you can fix it and make more people happy, you, tell, you tend to work, focus on what's right about your product, which, you know, you want to do when you're selling. You don't want to tell a potential customer what's wrong with your product. You want to tell them what's right and, and, and also be honest where it's not a fit. But you, you've got to be brutally honest about your own products, your own services, your own core competencies, what you can do well and what you can't, and, and then work to fix what doesn't work because you're not going to be the only one looking. If I'm competing with you, if Mark Cuban is competing with your business, I'm trying to find a way to kick your butt, and I'll find what's wrong with it. And if I find it before you do, then you're going to have a hard time competing. And I'd say third rule, and, and I'll leave it at that, is that sales cures all. Yeah, sure does. It, you know, I've never seen a company succeed that has no sales. Right. And, you know, people gave me a lot of grief about, oh, Broadcast.com, when you sold it to Yahoo, you were lucky, this and that. But what people didn't realize is it wasn't just about streaming sports over the Internet. Where we made our money and, and made our sales was selling the value of real-time communications over the Internet, you know, corporate webcasts to their customers, to prospects, to their employees, whatever it may be. And to do that, we had probably one of the five largest sales forces on the Internet at the time when, you know, back in 1999 to have 130-plus salespeople feet on the street selling these services, that was huge. And that, that was really our core competency, selling the, the value of real-time communications. Or the example I gave with the Mavericks, you know, five salespeople versus 40. Now, you know, it used, in the NBA, it used to be, 
you know, five was the norm. Now, you know, however many salespeople it takes has become the norm. They've, they've copied after us. So sales cures all is probably the biggest rule. Mark, we've got just a few minutes left. Who's your biggest influencer mentor when it comes to business? Is there someone that you look up to? Not really, no. I mean, I look to what people have done and what has worked and try to learn from it. I try to, you know, just ravenously consume as much information as I can. You know, I've, I've tried to see the things that Bill Gates did when, when Microsoft was rolling, that Michael Dell did. I mean, I always give the story of Michael Dell when, when he was first starting his company as PCs Limited out of his, his dorm room in, in Austin. There used to be this magazine called PC Week. And while everybody else was trying to squeeze every dollar they could out of a retail sales price as, as price of um, electronic components went down, Michael Dell, on the other hand, took out full-page ads in PC Week mm-hmm. selling hard drives and memory and all this stuff. But every single week, the prices would go down to reflect what was happening in the industry rather than him trying to squeeze out another nickel of profit. And he became kind of the de facto pricing index, and his business just took off from there. So kind of going against the norm and, and looking for people who went against the grain and, and had great ideas is, is really what I look for as opposed to individuals mentoring me. So, Mark, you've done wonders with the Mavericks. Uh, there are rumors floating all the time that you may be looking to buy another sports franchise at some point. The Penguins, the Pirates, the Cubs have been mentioned as possibilities. Uh, what's the timeline? Do you want to own another team, or do you have your hands full with one team and everything else you've got going on? I mean, I'd love to own an iconic team like the Cubs yeah. or the Pirates, um, and being Pittsburgh in particular because it's my hometown. Right. Um, but it's not something that I have to do. It's something that um, I think I could – use what I've learned with the Mavs and help an organization. I don't even necessarily have to be the lead investor. I just think it would be fun um, to be part of it, to own a baseball team um, or just be part of a group owning a baseball team. But, uh, you know, the way the way the industry has evolved and the pricing and everything and the fact that you know, the Cubs in particular are owned by a public corporation, I think it's going to make it very difficult. Boy, I would, I'm a Cubs fan. I'd love to see you own the Cubs. Yeah, you know, well, you, you know how it works. I mean, you're a business guy. You know that because the Tribune's a public company, it's basically going to – they'd have to get a, a banker and put it in a book right. and put out the bid. And there's so much private equity money out there right now that um, the, the price is going to be obscene. So if they, ta- if they sell it. time for two more questions, and I know you're going to love this one. If you were the NBA commissioner for a day, what would you change? I'd increase the marketing budget by 50% or more. I think – you know, in this era of entertainment, we all recognize that, that basketball, the NBA, is, is entertainment first and foremost, and you have to get out there and really market it. I think the folks that are marketing the World Cup, you're seeing those World Cup ads everywhere, and they're doing a great job, yet here we are with the NBA Finals even closer, and you're not seeing near the, the visibility of promotion as, as you do at the World Cup. And I think that's, where, that's not one of our strong points. We're better than we used to be, but not nearly as good as we could be. So my last question, our crack research staff tells me that in your early business career, uh-huh. you worked as a garbage bag and powdered milk salesman, and you even taught disco dancing uh-huh. lessons. Which was the harder sales job? Powdered milk. I failed. <laughs> you know what? I thought people would give up a little bit on taste to save enough money. No, saving 40 cents on a gallon of milk or 30 cents on a gallon of milk it wasn't enough incentive to taste to drink nasty milk. So uh, I learned my lesson. And the disco lessons, hell, I take that job back in a minute. <laughs> given, given, tw- given dance lessons to, to sorority girls for 25 bucks an hour. Were you wearing, like, the Travolta getup, too? No. 
Well, what, what did you wear when you're teaching the disco lesson? Oh, just your basic, you know, t-shirt and and jeans and that type. No of sequins, stuff. nothing like that. No, 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 no. <laughs> it, was, it, it was more about getting paid to, to, you know, forget the disco. I would teach them how to slow dance as much as I could. <laughs> That's why you're a smart business person. <laughs> Mark, I know you're super busy. I wish you the best of luck. You got it, Bob. Thanks, man. Thank you. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm looking for a place to have dinner with family, friends, or business associates, there's only one restaurant on my list Morton's The Steakhouse, the best steak anywhere. In its 28th year in business, Morton serves only the finest quality foods, featuring USDA prime-age beef, fresh seafood, hand-picked produce, and decadent desserts prepared to perfection, not to mention the award-winning wine list. When my destination is Morton's, the best is always on the menu, and they treat me like a VIP during every visit, whether in the dining room or the private boardrooms. With almost 75 restaurants conveniently located around the world, Morton's is the gold standard when it comes to steakhouses. To find the Morton's nearest you or to make a reservation, go online to mortons.com. Morton's, the best steak anywhere and the official steakhouse of Sports Business Radio. My guest is Jack Nicholas. He's the winner of a record 18 major championships. He's the CEO of the Nicholas Company and a goodwill ambassador for the game of golf. Mr. Nicholas, it's an honor to have you on Sports Business Radio. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Brian. So I got to tell you, in doing my research for this interview, I was struck by what an amazingly busy schedule you keep. You just finished hosting the memorial. You're the head of the Nicholas Companies. You travel to dozens of countries every year designing courses for Nicholas Design, and you somehow find time to spend quality time with your wife, your children, your 21 grandchildren. You seem to be working more now than you were when you were playing regularly. Where do you get all this energy? <laughs> well, if I, don't, if I don't keep the energy up, you know, you, they, they put you away. <laughs> and, uh, you know, sort of, or they farm you out or something, Brian. I, I don't know. I've always had energy. I've always been sort of... Uh, one of those kids when I was growing up that I got up in the morning and I came in at night when my mom grabbed my ears, you know? Right. And, uh, but I, that's, I've always had to be doing something. And I, you know, people always say, well, gosh, you know, you, how do you do all this stuff? I said, well, you know, you got to remember I was playing 25 weeks a year. I was traveling tournament golf and spending a week at a place. I don't do that anymore. I've got 25 free weeks now. Right. And uh, so I'm going to fill them. I, I enjoy filling them up and working and doing things. And it's, uh, you know, most people work all their life to retire to play golf. I play golf all my life to retire to work. Right. And so, and so I kind of enjoy that. And I've got the grandkids are growing up. My, my oldest just graduated from high school last last week. And so uh, we're not, uh, I'm, I'm watching them with high school athletics and I'll watch some of them with college and in the future. And so we're uh, we're, we're pretty active an exciting time for you, I'm sure. You're an incredible goodwill ambassador for the game of golf. You remain close to the United States Golf Association. As an endorsee of the Royal Bank of Scotland, you've entered into a deal that puts the USGA and the RBS together in a business relationship. The four-year agreement with the USGA features a number of components that will be integrated across all USGA championships, including the U.S. Open and the U.S. Women's Open. So now RBS has ties to three of golf's four majors as the official patron sponsor of the British Open Championship and the PGA Championship. Can you explain this new partnership between the RBS and the UGA and what your role is going to be uh, going forward? 
Well, you know, the RBS has been involved with the British Open for over 100 years. Right. And they, they, part of what they uh, have done, they've been a, you know, they were called, where they were, still are, the Royal Bank of Scotland. They felt like Royal Bank of Scotland was a little bit restrictive uh, since they, they became the, uh, I, think, I think, the third largest bank in Europe. And now they're the fourth largest bank in the world or the sixth largest bank in the United States. And my role was to help them trans, the transition from the Royal Bank of Scotland to RBS. And they used me as that vehicle. And so uh, through the advertising and promotion of, of my involvement with them, uh, you know, I think a lot of people realize that, that RBS is a pretty significant uh, player in the United States today. Absolutely. And so, and part of that has been all through the game of golf. So, the natural relationship of being involved with the British Open, uh, they wanted to expand that to be involved with golf's best. So, they wanted to be involved with the USGA and the PGA and, and, and their championships also. And they are. And, you know, I'm sort of that vehicle to uh, bring them together from the game of golf. And uh, it's been a very nice relationship. It's been great for me. And, I, and I'm sure it's been great for RBS, or they wouldn't continue to have me. Yeah, I'm sure. I love the commercials that they've done with you, too. I think those are great. You know, I look at what you've done and just what you've meant to the game of golf, not only when you played, but now you have Nicholas Design. It's an incredibly successful golf course design company. You've designed f- courses in 45 countries around the world. There's 300 Nicholas courses. Uh, you're designing 100 more. And between what you're doing with the USGA to promote the game of golf and these courses you're designing, what a legacy you're leaving for future golfers. Well, you know, it's a game that gave me so much, and it's a game that uh, I want to continue to be part of and continue to grow with it. Uh, one of the neat things about the things I'm doing is that, uh, you know, we're actually working in 29 new countries now, as well as all the other countries we've been working in. Wow. And, you know, we go into these countries, and, and a lot of them, we're the first golf course in that country. That's got to be fun. And to have the op- the, op- the opportunity to form the sh- the, and, uh, and, can, and sort of uh, formulate the, sh- the shape of what that game is going to be in that country and its future is, is kind of it's kind of fun to go into, into mostly the Eastern Bloc now with those countries, going into Russia, Poland, you know, uh, Bulgaria, Ukraine, all, all the way down through uh, Romania and Czech Republic and so forth and so on. And all those are all new places. And, you know, to... They all will grow up now on a pretty decent golf course, and and the young people that come from there will uh, be able to compete around the world and uh, make the game more of a global game, continue to grow it. And uh, that's kind of fun to be part of that. I've got to ask you a question as a designer. You're the greatest golfer who ever lived, so when you're designing a course, how do you put yourself in someone like my shoes? I'm a duffer, and when you're designing these holes, how do you think in terms of someone like me instead of, Jack Nicholas, greatest golfer who ever played. Well, I think that you, uh, you know, I've done, uh, we've done over 300 golf courses, so I think when you start to look at it, you pretty well figure out that who's going to play it, and you know, only 1.8 percent of your play is played from the back tees. Hmm. So you're really designing the golf course for 98.2 percent of the people, and so you really better be designing from the members tees because that's where your bread and butter comes from. And so you've got to figure out how do they, how does the average golfer hit it? How do, how do the women hit it? How do juniors, how do beginners? You've got to try to figure out how that's going to work. And you just keep, keep working with it and try to play them around. I mean, some of the first golf courses I did 
were very difficult golf courses because they were done for tournament golf. Right. And, uh, you know, like Muirfield is, is a difficult golf course, Shoal Creek, Castle Pines, they're, they're all done for tournament golf. Well, then then all of a sudden I, I figured out, I said, you know, I'm really not designing this golf course for one week a year. I should be designing this golf course for 51 weeks a year. Right. And adapting it to a tournament. I think if I look back at Augusta, I think Augusta was at Augusta is a wonderful golf course. It's a wonderful members golf course. All they did was move the tees back and hide the pins, and they played the Masters. So that philosophy I've always thought has been pretty darn good. And, you know, it worked for the Masters and it was successful. Why not try to, try to take it forward? So I try to look at that kind of a, kind of a thing and when I'm designing. And I think it's... Uh, I think it's been successful. We we sometimes don't don't get it right every time, but a lot of times we do. And uh, I think we've got a lot of people that uh, have enjoyed our golf courses and enjoy uh, uh, playing them and and uh, and living there. So it's uh, uh, and it's, and it's been fun to be able to be part of it. I would imagine that people find you if someone wants to hire Jack Nicholas to design their course. How does that process take place? I mean, I see your website, and obviously you've got a pristine reputation, but. You know, these people in third-block countries, eastern-block countries, how do they find you and bring you in to design their courses? Well, they, they, they figure it out somehow. Cause they, <laughs> they, get, they get to us. And, you know, most of the stuff comes into the office, although we do have we have an, we have an office in Moscow, and i got an office in hmm. Brussels. i got an office in uh, Seoul, an office in Hong Kong, Beijing, uh, 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 South Africa, uh, representatives in Argentina, and I've got people in all parts of the world, and so you know, they, and, and we're we're doing golf courses in all parts of the world. So people generally figure out that hey, Jack's doing a golf course in uh, in China. We ought to be able to figure out where is he doing China. We talk to those people. We talk to we're doing a golf course in Russia. How do we talk to those people over there if we want one in? In Bulgaria, you know, I mean, they they figure out how to get to us. Other, otherwise, and, and our people are always uh, prospecting. And frankly, you know, the internet's been a great source of our business. Hmm. Uh, I would say that uh, ten years ago, we got oh maybe five percent of our leads off of the internet, and I'd say today we probably get sixty seventy percent of our leads off the internet. Wow, that's amazing! I would have never guessed that. I wouldn't have either, but it it's actually is a fact. That's great. My guest is Jack Nicholas. Mr. Nicholas, there's lots of talk, obviously, about Tiger Woods eventually breaking your record of 18 major championships. Tiger sits at 13 right now as we speak. A remarkable stat that very few people realize is that you finished second 19 times out of the 162 majors you played in. So if you won half of those, you'd have 28 major championships. I think what Tiger's doing is incredible, but, I mean, let's be realistic here. If you had 28 majors, we wouldn't talk about Tiger breaking your record at all. Who faced the stiffer competition, you or Tiger? For my, well, for my vote, you did. Well, thank you. I, but first of all, I failed 19 times then. That's sort of the way I look at it, uh, Brian. I mean, I, I, got, I got beat or I failed 19 times where I, where I came close, and I, I won 18 times. So, uh, but, but, you know, you, you're going to lose sometimes when you're, when you're in contention, and you're going and I think that the, the the competition that I had, I think there it was very difficult. I mean, and the, the reason I think it was difficult is because we had fewer really good players, and but the real, but the good players we had all learned how to win, and they'd all won five, six, seven, eight, nine majors. You know, Arnold and Gary and uh, Trevino and Watson; those guys all knew how to win. And if I was if I slipped up, they were ready to play. Uh, the problem today is that we have we have Tiger. And then we have so many other really, really good players, but there's just not enough, they don't get enough exposure of winning to really 
uh, feel confident coming down the stretch that they're going to make it happen. So I, I don't know really how to answer the question properly. Uh, you know, there are probably more good players today, but yet uh, ours had had the experience to learn how to win. So it's just, it's you know, you you, you don't know really what is right. We hear the story about a young tiger taping a sheet with your stats on his bedroom wall and kind of being fixated on catching you someday. Who was the guy that you were maybe fixated on? Was it Arnold Palmer as you were growing up and you said, that's who I want to be or that's who I want to break all of his records? Well, Bobby Jones actually was. I, I, Bobby Jones won the U.S. Open at Scioto in 1926, and I grew up at Scioto. I started playing golf course in 1950, and there were many golfers that, that are members of that club that were there when Jones won, inclu- including my father. And uh, uh, so I never heard anything other but Jones, 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 and I never really thought anything about breaking any records. It was never. We didn't have that kind of pressure. Tigers had it on from day one, but I mean, it wasn't until 1970 that I won my 10th major. And I walked in the press room, and Bob Green of the AP said, Jack, that's 10 majors you've won now. Congratulations. You only got three more to tie Bobby Jones. I said, what? I mean, to be very honest with you, I had never counted him. I never even dreamed of it. Never even entered my mind. And I, and I never thought Bobby Jones' 13 majors was, was, was uh, you know, approachable. And then all of a sudden, I, I was three away from it. Then I actually focused on it. And uh, then when I focused on it, I got past it. And, uh, you know, I, I just played, uh, tried to win what I could after that, and uh, uh, but you pretty much, you know, once you pass something, you lose your drive to go on. Uh, and uh, uh, even though I wanted to play golf, I just didn't, uh, I, I didn't drive as hard as I did when I was younger. But uh, you know, I'm, my record is what it is. I certainly, I, I certainly wish, uh, I'm quite happy with what it is. Do I wish it was more? Sure. Now I do. Sure. But how did I know Bob? How did I know Tiger Woods was going to come along, or how did Bobby know, Jones know Jack Nicklaus was going to come along? You know, it it really isn't. It really isn't important. Uh, Tiger is a great player. He's uh, he's doing and dominating the game today. He's uh, he's a nice young man. He's uh, handles himself well. The game's in good hands. So. If he breaks my record, you know, more power to him. I just want to be the first one to shake his hand. And obviously nobody wants their records to be broken, but, you know, I think it brings more excitement into the game to have uh, have Tiger chasing my record. Obviously, it puts my name in the newspaper every day right beside his. So, sure. you know, it's not it's not all that bad for me either. So, uh, But it's uh, it's kind of exciting. It's kind of fun to watch him play. He's, just, he's a very, very talented young man and uh, uh, fun to watch. One of the things that's so different, obviously, today is compared to when you played the prize money. I mean, Tigers made $93 million on the tour. <laughs> you won 113 tournaments, and you earned a little bit less than $6 million in your entire career on the tour. Obviously, I would guess you're earning a lot more than that with Nicholas Design and your other endeavors now. But do you ever look back and just go, gosh, I played in the wrong era. I could be making a lot more money now with 113 victories. Well, I think Ben Hogan actually looked like he thought maybe he played in the wrong era. Yeah, no I kidding. His, his total, I think his total lifetime earnings were like 241000 Wow. So, I mean, if you really look at that, I mean, it's just times change. And, you know, I'm, what I look at is I think that the kids today are really blessed. They have the opportunity to play golf for a living. And we played golf and had to be successful so we could go make a living. You know, I mean, with outside things, you never made a living on a golf course when we played. Right. And today the kids can actually play play golf and, and, and don't have to do anything else. They can play golf and make a living. That's And I think that's neat. And we were the forerunners of that. We, uh, you know, the group in front of us, the the the, the, uh, the Hogans and the Nelsons and the Sneeds, 
uh, were the forerunners of that, and then we came in, and then we were the ones that started to get it to the next level, and then Tiger and his group were taking it to the next level. And I think it's, I think it's great for the game. Jack, Father's Day is next weekend. All four of your sons work for you, and you won your last major in 1986, the Masters, with your son Jack carrying your bag for you. That had to have been a wonderful thrill. Talk about the wonderful bond that you've built with your sons. You know, honestly, I see a lot of athletes who play, and they're so involved in their athletic endeavors that their relationship with their family suffers. And I've got to tip my hat to you because you seem like you're so close with your family, and I think that's just so admirable. Well, that's always been the most important thing in my life, Brian. I'm in, uh, my wife and I grew up in the Midwest, in Ohio. We both have same same values. We both felt like we both came from close families, and we both felt like family was the most important thing. And you know, I, you know, I, I, I probably could have won a lot more tournaments if I'd have, if I would have sort of been selfish enough to leave my family. But I just didn't want to do that. My family is what I wanted to be part of, and uh, my kids are all working with me. They're all doing things that are similar to what I do. They, they're all trying to handle their kids the way, uh, you know, I handle them, which makes me proud. Uh, you know, I've, I've, got, I've got a good group of kids, and uh, they, uh, uh, and they're good citizens, and they, and they do well. And, I'm, and I think that's what my wife and I are most proud of. Right. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's such a wonderful trait and quality that you have, and think of all the, the generations that you've affected. Last question for you. Obviously, you've played the game of golf all your life, uh, you've been there with golf during some incredibly joyous moments like we discussed with the 1986 Masters, but golf has been an outlet for you for some incredibly somber moments as well. What are the main lessons the game of golf can teach us if we play, pay close enough attention? Well, I think the game, the game is a, a game that you, you, you get out of it what you put into it. And you, get, uh, uh, you, know, you, you, get, you develop relationships with people. I think you play 18 holes of golf with somebody. You get to know them pretty well. You're exactly uh, right. Yeah, you you know what, what, what kind of a sport they are. You know what kind of a personality they got. You know whether they're a hothead or or whether they, they they'll, they'll enjoy the game for the game or they're or they're or they're just they're driven by total competition or they're driven for greed or whatever they're driven by. And you find that out pretty quickly on the golf course. So it's a it's a great game for that. It's a great game for for people. It's a great game for 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 a father to play with a son. It's a great game for a grandfather to play with his grandson or granddaughter. And, you know, it can be played by all walks of life and people of all handicaps and all abilities. It's, it's just a marvelous game. And it's, uh, there's not many games like that. Uh, so uh, to, be, to be fortunate enough to be involved in that game all my life has been a very, very special thing for me. And it's, uh, uh, you know, if, it, and you meet the same people on the way down that you meet on the way, way up, Brian. You, you know that. And, uh, so you better you better watch your p's and q's on the way up because you're going to have to eat it. Either you're going to have to eat them on the way down if you haven't handled it right. Well, it's great, great advice, and uh, it's such an honor to speak with you. You've always conducted yourself in such a wonderful manner on and off the course, and I really wish you the best in all of your endeavors moving forward. Thank you, Brian. Nice to talk with you. Good to talk to you too. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Let me. 
This is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. We live in an age where everything is on the record. What we say anywhere, whether it's in an elevator, in an email, or during a conversation with a reporter, is now being broadcast instantaneously on YouTube, in a blog, or through the mass media. It's easier than ever to spot someone who has been traditionally media trained and is just giving you that same old boring PR speak. I want to help you navigate the tricky media landscape. When I'm not hosting Sports Business Radio, I team with former Nike PR director Lee Weinstein to form Evergreen Media Training. Evergreen Media Training assists individuals and groups by offering unique preparation and training catered to your specific needs. From explaining today's media environment to providing you with post-training, monitoring, and feedback, we'll guide you every step of the way. With nearly 40 years of combined experience working with some of the biggest names in the sports industry, we'll help you communicate your messages honestly, thoughtfully, and from the heart. For an overview and a list of services, visit evergreenmediatraining.com or email me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. Detroit Tigers owner Mike Illich, in response to troubling times for Detroit's auto manufacturers, decided to feature the GM, Ford, and Chrysler logos this season on Comerica Park's center field fountain for free. This was a deal he could have probably gotten $1.5 to $2 million for from another company, but Illich did this deal for free. This is according to the Detroit Free Press this week. Nathan, troubled times for the auto industry, but terrific move here from Detroit Tigers owner Mike Illich. Well, absolutely, and think about how many fans attend Detroit Tigers games that probably work for one of the major automakers. So this is a good PR move, and I think it's a good community and business move. It'll come back to pay him tenfold when the economy turns around. Well, and lots of people like us are talking about it, so he's getting lots of great media exposure. All right, lots of thank yous on the show this week. Our show staff, we've been doing it for five years. Thank you so much to all of them. Nathan Roach, Bobby Corser, Josh Blank, Darren Peck, Ron Barr, James Harrison, Doug Zanger. Our sponsors, Morton's The Steakhouse, the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon, ProTrade.com and Evergreen Media Training. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast every week. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com and click on the podcast page. We have a Facebook page. Go into my blog and become our Facebook friend. It has been an honor to be sitting in this seat for the last five years. I hope we have at least five years more with this show. And I hope you have a great week. And we'll see you next weekend right here on Sports Business Radio. Greg Oden of the Portland Trailblazers supports the Ronald McDonald Houses. I'm a big fan of the houses. Happy to help them make a difference. He helps because he believes every hospitalized child should be near their family in tough times. And everyone can support this home away from home. When you purchase a McCafe Espresso drink or premium roast coffee, McDonald's donates a portion of proceeds to Ronald McDonald House charities in Oregon and Southwest Washington. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. A little change can make a big difference. 
Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Robert Sarver, the owner of the Phoenix Suns. When people come to a Suns game, what kind of an experience do you want it to be for them? We want them to be entertained from the time they walk in to the time they leave. The co-owner of the Sacramento Kings, Gavin Maloof. Gavin, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Brian. How are you? Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. Sports Business Radio. Saturday. That's why you're a smart business person. <laughs> or at sportsbusinessradio.com.